Hello, and welcome to Sobercast. We provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in a podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Also, if you're a member of NA or have friends that are, please tell them about our other podcast, NAPOD. NAPOD features NA speakers and workshops in the same format as Sobercast. We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to NAPOD.XYZ if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day. alcoholic and uh you know i myself i'd like to say i've had a really wonderful wonderful weekend uh you know i learn a lot in alcoholics anonymous and anything i do within that so um i guess without further ado we'll um introduce our speaker today who i've just uh, i've been looking for her all weekend and i finally met her today so i was glad for that and uh her name is carol h and she is from connecticut A lot of tall people in AA. Hi, everyone. My name is Carol, and I'm an alcoholic. I want to say thank you for having me here. I was really surprised and excited when Hugh had asked me. And after being here this weekend, I look around, and I see all the delegates and everybody in their different levels of service. And I really want to say thank you because, you know, when you go to a regular AA meeting, you just sit, you get your coffee, you listen, you grow, you leave, you get your hugs, all that stuff. People in the program day in and day out, a lot of times don't know what you guys do. And they don't know how hard you work. I mean, this is a nice celebration that you have, but there's a lot of work that goes on every year that you guys do. And I really want to say, on behalf of a lot of people who probably don't say thank you, thank you. I want to thank you for that opportunity to be able to be here to to say that and let you know that people do appreciate what you do, even, even if they don't know your face to the to the job that you do. Um, The only thing I want to start off saying, really, is that someone told me early on in the program something that I want to share with you and keep that in mind as I'm saying my story. I don't have a lot of drunk log. I don't have a lot of life. (laughs) I know I'm only 30 years old, so I can't give you a 30-year war story or anything. You know, I've I've been around, uh, you know, not that long a time. But I had heard early on that AA may not necessarily open the gates of heaven and let you in, but it will open the gates of hell and let you out. And that's really what I feel that AA has done for me. I feel like it has opened those gates. It's let me come out of that life of darkness, that life of tears, that life that I was so angry and so afraid that people were going to hurt me and angry for what they were probably going to do and have done to people in the past. I had all this bottled up inside of me, and I was just ready to explode, and alcohol allowed me to explode, allowed me to have an excuse to explode, and AA has shown me that there are other ways to deal with that stuff, and a lot of those feelings have since passed, and I've grown through them, and I've worked my steps, and I've tried to understand where they came from and how I have to get rid of them and and live without them. But it really has opened the gates of hell and let me out. When I was growing up, I grew up in an alcoholic home. Now, I didn't know that at the time. I just knew that our life was our life. You know, we didn't have this fancy label. You know, as far as everybody else is concerned, 
they could call us and leave it to Beaver family because we looked perfect. We looked perfect. You know, Dad was a banker. Mom was a hard worker. We all were very well-behaved, very obedient children, did what we were supposed to do, were to, you know, everything. We looked good. We looked really good. Now, you shut the door, you walk inside our house when there's no cameras or any company around, and it usually let loose. And I remember saying to myself that I was not going to do to my family what my father's drinking was doing to us. I remember saying that over and over and over again. I remember being a little girl and seeing my dad drunk as a skunk, sitting in the chair, his chin down to his chest, hanging off to the side, and here is a respectable businessman that everybody sees him one way, and they, they see him as a party man, a good man, a fun-loving man. And I saw him as that, too, because I really do. I did love him, and I do love him. But as soon as that alcohol entered his body, he became a different person. And as a little girl, I didn't understand it. And my mother would walk away, and she would just say, ah, oh, forget it. And then she would leave me with the words of, you talk to him, you're the baby, he'll listen to you, he won't listen to anyone else. So I took on the burden, I thought I was responsible to fix him. All the years I tried to fix him and he'd make promises and he wouldn't get fixed, you know, he just, he, he just wouldn't stop, you know, he, the promises that he made, he couldn't keep. I didn't understand the time that he couldn't, I just thought he didn't, you know, and that he didn't love me enough. And so the hostility and the anger build up inside and all the things that happen in the alcoholic family, I'm not going to go through more details, but I wanted to tell you that because that's really how I started. Now, when I was about 13 years old, I remember we just had such extreme family problems that I just started drinking. It just came natural. It wasn't like I never had booze in my body. It wasn't like that at all because I remember growing up and if you had a cold, you had a shot of brandy. You know, you always had sips of beer. I always, you know, that was always, so I was familiar with booze, but I went to booze on a mission. I went to booze when my family was falling apart and I knew that there was going to be a safe place in that booze. I knew there was. I knew there was because I saw my father going to oblivion more than I ever wanted to see him go into oblivion. As much as I didn't like the pain he caused my family, I thought if I could drink and get that oblivious feeling, get that feeling of, I don't care, I'm, I'm cold inside anyway, I feel like I was dead inside because I felt like I was such a bad person and I was worthless. And so I started to drink, and it came very natural. It came very natural. I drank on a mission, like I said. I didn't drink to party. I never party. Never did. I didn't have time to party. I was on a mission. I didn't want to be drinking and have to be nice and social. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. And so when I was in school, I would drink on the mission. I would drink through a straw. I heard you can get drunk faster than through a straw. I had my stash of straws in my purse. And um, I drank as much as I could, as fast as I could. That's what I did, straight down. And I, would, I started to bring my bottles to school. And I would steal bottles from my house because there were so many. They really wouldn't miss them, I thought. And then people at school started to catch on that I was getting different. And I started to lose a few friends. They tried to confront me and talk with me. And I was like, oh, go away. If you're a real friend, you'd stand by me. And if you're not, so long. And uh, they did. They left. And my family was starting to notice some changes in me. They tried to talk to me about it. But as they tried to talk to me, I... And they'd say, what's the matter? And I always say, I'm just tired. And, you know, I really was tired, but that wasn't the reason why I was tired, you know. I mean, it wasn't the reason why I was acting that way. I was tired because I was drunk all the time. I found that as I was drinking, I couldn't go the weekend. I See, I didn't drink weekends. I didn't drink weekends at all because I was home. And if my parents went away, then maybe I could. But I never went more than three days without a drink. 
It didn't take long. You know, my drinking took place in less than a year. Less than a year. I didn't go to the Navy. I didn't do anything. I didn't go out with all the guys. I was just less than a year of drinking. But alcoholism is so powerful. Don't underestimate it. Don't underestimate what it does to your kids and to your family. And it, if it wants to, it'll just eat you up. It'll just eat you up. If you are a prime candidate, and I was, it just took to me and just took off. It just took off. It just exploded. And I was just... I never, I didn't know what was hitting me, but I didn't care because I was oblivious to pain. And I didn't care because I couldn't feel what I could see my family was going through. You know, I could see them hurting. I could hear my mother in the other room. My mother said that my father had an affair and I was always closer to my father than I was my mother. Even with his drinking and all, I was always daddy's little girl. One day she looked at me and she said, okay, Carol, now you know what your father's done and he's done to me and to the family. Now who do you love more? Now who will you live with? That stuff stinks. That stuff stinks. And, you know, she's a wife of an alcoholic. You know, we can shake our heads and go, ooh, and all that. That was a heavy rap. But, you know, alcoholism did that to her, too. It did that to her, too. I heard someone say a long time ago that alcoholism, if you think of a mobile and you take one little piece off, the whole thing goes all crazy. That's what alcoholism does. I personally hate the disease for the damage that it does, but I'm grateful that God gave me the gift of alcoholism, strange as that may sound. I'm grateful because I have given an op- I've been given an opportunity to change my life pattern from how I grew up to how I live it now and how AA has offered new opportunities and new suggestions and better ways. And that came to me through AA, and I don't regret that, but I see the pain. And I'll tell you, I've been on both sides of the fence when it comes to alcoholism. I've been the drunk, and I've been the daughter of a drunk. I'd be the drunk any day. Any day. I love you, al people. I really do, because I'll tell you, it is a lot harder to be powerless over someone else that you love and you want to help so badly and they come back they come back at you with an attitude of get away, what's wrong with you, and you get attacked, 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 attacked. Meanwhile, you get so messed up in your head you don't know what's going on. Yet when you're a drunk, you get drunk, you get oblivious, you don't care. It's the easier job. I give you Al Anon people a lot of credit. A lot of credit. And if you stayed with your alcoholic person, God bless you, because um, it's, you had to have angels with you. But um, anyway, so as it, as it just went on, I'm not going to go through a big drunk club, but as it went on, the school saw what was going on. They kicked me out a couple of times. They had my parents come to school. My parents would look at me very tenderly because they were afraid. I'm the last one. My mother said, you were the most work. I said, but wasn't I worth it? <laughs> the last kid, well, thank God, because I really did give them a run for their money. And they'd come to school, and they'd say, what's going on, Carol? And they'd say, I don't know. And I didn't know what to say because I wanted my booze, and I wasn't going to start saying, I'll do this, I'll do that. I didn't know what to say. And yet I couldn't say, like if they found a stash on me, I couldn't say, it's not mine. I'm drunk. I couldn't sit on the chair. How can I deny this? So I had to just kind of go with them. My mother brought me home, and it's not to make fun of my mother because I, I appreciate her, um, her innocence in it. When she'd bring me home from school, they both came out of work, brought me home, talked with me. I would lie as much as I could without being too cruel because I really wasn't a lying child. I was a nice girl before I started drinking. But when I got booze in me, I was like very much like my dad. I was mean and angry, nasty, and I'd tell you things. My tongue would flash right through you. And my mother 
when I went home one of these days, she brought me a bowl of chicken soup. Now, I'm not making fun of my mother, but that's what my mother knew. This is back in 1979. She did not know. We didn't have the parent awareness thing back then. Or at least we didn't have it as much as we have now. We didn't have the parents getting involved with all this stuff. My mom didn't know. She just knew that this sort of thing you can read in good housekeeping every once in a while. But that always happened in California because they were wild in California, you know. In Connecticut, we're the Leave It to Beaver family. That sort of thing doesn't happen. And so she did. She did what on the level that she understood. And again, that's not to make fun of her because that's all she knew. And you know, when you when you don't know where to turn, you don't know what to do. That's hard. <clears throat> so. At the end of all that, I changed. You know, I changed during that whole period of time. I went from a girl who was, a show, I was basically a showgirl. I was basically a showpiece in my family before I started drinking. I was always nice, always smiling, always polite, always, 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 always. You'd never be disappointed in me. You'd never be disappointed in me because, you know what, I was a chameleon. I could be whoever you wanted me to be, so you'd never not like me. You'd never be disappointed. I would be liked by everyone, but you know what, that eats people up. Because after a while, you know, that on our coins, you know, do they don't self be true. I don't know if that's still on. Is that still on there, Hugh? That that saying is that still are we allowed to have that still that saying still to they don't self be true? I'm not sure what we're allowed to have anymore. Um but but I know that that saying, um, you know, we don't you know, when you're not true to yourself, when you don't know who you are, you can only be so many people and use it up. Use it up and, and I felt used up. And uh, at the end of my drinking, my family knew what was going on. School had just, you know, given up on me. Friends had left me. I, again, I went from being a showpiece girl to somebody who was walking through the schools. Sometimes they'd find me in the corner of the girls' bathroom just sitting there. I'd be so drunk. I'd just be on the bathroom floor. Not a good place to be in a girls' school. Actually, a school period. Um, But I'd have pockets of sweat underneath my arms just coming out of me. You know, booze does when you're drunk all the time. It just comes out of your pores. You know, I was not exactly prom queen material, that's for sure. But you know what? I didn't care because I wasn't looking for that. I didn't have high hopes. I wasn't going to be something someday. I didn't care anymore. I wanted to die. I felt like I was worthless. I felt like I was a letdown. I felt like I was just a piece of nothing. And then I let everybody down and that my family really shouldn't have been bothered with even having me because I was more work than I was worth. And that's how I felt. So I didn't look at myself in the mirror and go, oh, you better get your act together. For me, it wasn't like that. There was one girl who I knew who kept saying, you have a drinking problem. And I said, no, you do. And you know what? We both ended up in AA. So we were watching each other, but we couldn't identify it in ourselves. <laughs> and I remember the, the sneakiness of my thinking, <clears throat> excuse me, when I was drinking, was that I remember the paranoia right at the very end really being at its height. I knew that people could see me, smell me, know where I was, and know what I had done. I knew that. I knew that. So I remember different things like my parents would go away, well, let's just say out for the night, and they'd have a big jug of wine in the back corner of the refrigerator. I'd walk up to the refrigerator, open up, I'd scope it out, take a mental picture. The orange juice label is this way. The milk label is that way. This way, that way, this way, that way. It's always in the far corner. I take everything out carefully, take the jug out, drink as much as I could, as fast as I could, pour it in an extra glass if I needed it, put it back, put the orange juice back, put the milk back, put everything back because they're going to notice. Now, maybe they would have, but at that point, you just know that you're hiding something. you know. But I didn't tell myself that. I just knew I didn't want to get caught. And we had new carpet in our living room. That's where we had these two end tables that were, that were filled with booze. I mean, it was like my parents just came back from a, pa- uh, 
from a trip to Paris, and they had this fancy Paris wine. And even then, I still had the fantasy that I might be classy. So I was drinking all the Paris wine, you know, thinking, well, if I can get drunk, maybe I'll be classy and drunk, you know. <laughs> and it didn't do any better because when you get sick, I don't care if it's Empyrean or if it's Ripple, but when you get sick, you get sick, you know. It's the same stuff. And I remember going into the living room with a new carpet, and if you walked on it, it left footprints. So I knew they were going to watch those footprints. So I go on my hands and knees over to the thing. Again, take a mental picture. The scotch is here. The drambui was here. The Jack Daniels was here. And go and take all the mental pictures, pull everything out, take out the bottle, drink as much as I could, as fast as I could. And sometimes I'd sit there with the bottle, and I'd think to myself, oh, of those bottles, and I'd get all upset, and I would drink more, you know, thinking I'm going to need some strength. I'd put the bottle back, and I'd put all the others back, and then, to get rid of the evidence, I'd crawl on my hands and knees and swoosh the footprints out of the carpet. <laughs> Alcoholism takes a lot of work. We all know that. We all know that. And I was only 14. I was only 14. And you know what? You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out how to be sneaky. When alcoholism is in you, when alcoholism is in you and it's eating away at your very being, at your spirit that says who you are, as far as I'm concerned, your spirit says who you are, you know, that, that essence about you. When it, alcoholism just eats it up, you don't have to be anybody special. Alcoholism has its own path. And it takes basically that same path with every person. You know, I came in when I was 14, and if you came in when you were 45, we probably have the same story, basically. If you look at events, probably not. If you look at feelings, probably so. And that's what I've asked people to do. When I've shared over time, I've heard people say to me, I've spilt more than you drank, you know. So being well, for Kathy Weather says, you didn't spill so much, you might have been in here faster, you know. But... <laughs> I was smart. I drank with a straw. You don't drop booze when you drink with a straw. See, I had one up on the old people. So anyway, at the end, it got very, it got very sad. It got very dark. And um, uh, my last drunk was a very violent one. I don't need to go through the details on that. But let's just say that I tried to kill myself. It wasn't the first time. I tried to jump in front of traffic because I wanted it to be violent because that's how violent I felt inside. And the only way I could feel peace was to let that violence out. And I tried to jump in front of vehicles. And, you know, I really believe that God's grace, you know, my God is an awesome God. He really is an awesome God. And I'm speaking for myself. And I'm not going to be a Sunday morning preacher. But I love my God. And he is awesome. And I believe that he has been with me all through my drinking, all through my childhood. I really feel like... He has led me, you know, that I really believe that certain people are chosen to be in AA and certain people are chosen. I really believe that he has a, a, a you know, a, a path that he wants me to take. He has a goal for me. And I really am so grateful that in that path he's protected me from myself. Because when I thought I had all the answers or I thought I knew the cure, I didn't. And he'd always save me. And he did. When you jump in front of trucks and cars and they go all over the place and they don't hit you and they don't kill each other, there's definitely a divine power, in my, in my opinion, involved. So I tried to kill myself. I tried to kill my father. Didn't succeed at either one of them, which was good. Um, and uh, just to say that the hospital, they, they came, the ambulance, the whole thing, and all that stuff that happens. And they took me and they said, we're going to bring you to a school. I thought to myself, 
this does not sound right. It just didn't sound right. And I knew in my heart that things were changing. Things were going to change. I knew in my heart that somebody was going to start making me make other people aware of what's going on. They were going to have to all open up. I just knew in my heart I knew this was it. I didn't know what I'd be like. I didn't know what I'd be like. I was 14 years old, always was whatever anybody wanted me to be, whatever, whenever. And I was so afraid to be somebody that you guys wouldn't like. I knew this was going to be a changing point. So I went to the hospital, and they sent me off to Hallbrook Hospital in Westport. And after everything, I went through my last drunk. And I had, part of my last drunk, I had a tube top and shorts, and I just kind of snapped in my mind. I was just enraged. And um, I only, you know, it's funny, because at the end of my drinking, it took very little to get me drunk. I was so filled with bad emotions, negative emotions, I should say, that it took very little to get me drunk, because I was off. You know, I was off in the extreme of that emotion, and I was a wild person. I could say I was drinking. And the night of my last drunk, I just took off. I just burst with emotion, and I took off, and I ran through. Next to our house I grew up in in Cheshire, we had all these woods, and it was all brush, and I ran face first right through them. And I don't remember too much about that. I remember doing it. I don't remember pain. I remember feeling a sigh of relief because it was third of pain. And for some people that may not understand that, some people, you know, drank, always protect themselves. I didn't. I was somebody who hated myself, and I thought that I was more trouble than I was worth. So to see, feel the pain, to me, felt like I was doing a good thing. And I ran off into the highway and started doing my, my uh, juggling act out there. But when I went to the hospital, they looked at me, and I, from, from head to toe, all in the front of me, I was all scraped, all bloody, because of all the brush that had just scraped me all over my face, my chest, everywhere. And um, it didn't faze me. It didn't faze me. I was drunk. That's the mission that I was on, to not feel. Whether it's inside or whether it's outside, I didn't want to feel. So I was in the hospital. They took me in. They did all the things that you do there. I was scared. I was afraid. They were 14-year-old, 15-year-old heroin addicts, and I just drank a lot, you know. I didn't do drugs. You know, I, I, I know I'm unusual nowadays because I'm, I'm a thoroughbred, you know, I'm just an alky. I didn't have any drugs. There were guys when I was drinking who tried to get me to do drugs, and I knew why they wanted me to do drugs. And I didn't, I didn't do that either, you know, because I didn't, my mission was to get drunk, you know, not get anything else, you know. I didn't want to get anything else. And so I didn't. That was not part of my drinking story. So sorry, there's no pregnancies or anything that's offering, nothing exciting there. I was just a basic get drunk, fall down, throw up if you have to, you know, and get it over with. So when I was in the hospital and they went through all the things they do in a hospital, they said that I was there on a, um, I think it was a 10-day pass or a 10-day, you know, mandatory stay. And then after I was there for all, my parents came up and I was mortified. I was so embarrassed. And it came to the time where they said, you're going to need to make a decision. This is your time now. This is your time. You have an opportunity to leave. You've stayed here the time that we've told you. What do you want to do? And I remember my mother, who was always made of steel. Good woman, but tough. My father, who was made of jello. Good man, but very soft. <laughs> and they were both sitting with me, and I remember sitting there and... Actually, my mother was a little bit further back, and he said, it's time for you to make your decision. What do you want to do? And my father, again, I was always daddy's little girl, 
he put his hand on my knee and he looked at me and he says, and he's crying. He, and he was just too much for him to handle. I mean, he loved me. He wasn't mad at me. You know, I mean, it's, it's, my parents are awesome. That You know, alcoholism does what it does, but my parents still loved me and they still, it was amazing. I'm just very grateful. And he put his hand on my knee and he says, honey, and he's crying. He says, I really want you home. And I looked kind of behind him, and there's my mother looking. I thought, uh-oh, you know. Because I knew my mother had this look on her face like, don't let him get to you, you know. And I knew my mother knows enough. My mother is a strange combination. She kind of has a little Al-Anon and a little common sense that came to her naturally and still some codependency, so she's kind of a bundle of things. And, um, but she was looking at me with that Al-Anon look, you know. <laughs> And I knew the difference, that look that said, you know what's right to do and don't you dare let your father get. And she wouldn't come over and say, honey, get away from her. He would, she wouldn't say that. She'd leave him be, but she was going to look daggers at me until I got the message. And I knew she was right. I knew she was right. And I said, daddy, and I was crying because I never let my father down. Never. Dad wants it, I do it. And I said, Daddy, I'm sorry, I have to stay. And that was the first decision I made towards my recovery. That's why I tell you that story. It was a hard one. It was not peer pressure, parent pressure, you know, because I have parents who love me very much, and yet I still wanted them to, to approve of me, and I wanted to make up for what I did, and yet I knew if I went home, I wouldn't know how to sort it out. And the, the hospital told me they were going to help me learn how to sort it out, and so I, I trusted that. I stayed in there. You know, started to get better, learned all the things you're supposed to learn, you know, about the disease part. I had heard about that, you know. And I understood that when they explained to me that the threefold disease first gets to you, phys- first gets to you spiritually, emotionally, and then physically. And then when you get better, you need to put the plug in the jug first, stop drinking. Then you start to get a little better up in your head. And then spiritually, hopefully, as long as you're open-minded and not rebellious, you'll come around. You know, that's what the three, that's what the first three steps say. I came, came to, came to believe. You know, so we have all these slogans in the program that remind us you know, that one of them runs into the other slogan eventually. It basically says, AA really works, but you need to come and you need to be open-minded. And so I did go. I was open-minded. However, now I'm up in the hospital up in Westport. I see Mercedes. I see BMWs, I see Porsches, it's up there. I mean, I'm not from this kind of life, this is cool. This lady one time came and she complained, I don't know how many meetings in the hospital she came to, she'd come to the off-site, and she'd say, she went out to dinner, because she wasn't in the hospital, she was just somebody who came to hospital meetings. And how she was just so grateful that when she went out to dinner, that she didn't have the duck orange because they had the orange liqueur in it. And I'm thinking, orange liqueur? I'm eating Salisbury steak in a past lifetime with duck orange, you know? And she told this story like three, four, five times. I wanted to say, lady, get off the duck orange, you know? I mean, it's another day. But I learned later on in my sobriety, she had to talk about it and talk about it until she was sick and tired of hearing herself talk about it. Because when that happens, it's usually resolved or passed. But I didn't know that at the time. So I'm sitting in the meetings in the hospital going, these people are rich, but they're nuts, you know? I mean, it's like Dr. Larange. I couldn't figure out what the big deal was. I had a father who was falling down drunk and all these problems. You were about Dr. Larange. I could not understand the two. So I just kind of stayed there and kept shut, you know, shut my mouth and just did my thing. Well, when it was time to leave, my father came to pick me up. Picked me up and he drove me home. 
when he drove me home, I cried the whole way home. And I was embarrassed to cry. That's something I would have done to my father. I mean, if I fell and there was blood coming out of me, I would have cried. But this was an emotional thing. I usually didn't cry about emotional things. I just didn't do that, you know, because it's like toughen up, snap out of it. And we're driving home, and I was crying. And he was very sensitive, even though he's the alcoholic. Also, he looked at me and he goes, I think I know how you feel. And he says, you know, he says, I remember he says a similar situation just when he was coming home from the hospital, something else. He says, I was afraid too. He said, are you afraid of what, what you're going to find at home, what your life is going to be like? And I said, yeah, I really am. And he says, we'll work with you, honey. No, we're here. We'll work with you. And I have to tell you that in the time that I've been in AA, I came in when I was 14. I've seen a lot of young people come in the program, and I've not seen a lot of the uh, as open-minded and cooperative parents. I really haven't. And I'll tell you that there's a lot of things that I've seen in my family, and I know my family has gone through some hard times because of me. That's what alcoholism does. I think that's what having kids does, right? Isn't that just part of having kids? But then alcoholism added a second, you know, angle to it. But I came home and started going to AA meetings, and my father said to me, I have a friend of mine, a business friend, who I know has been in AA for a long time. He says, I've asked him to bring you around to some meetings. I had just turned 15, so I couldn't drive. So I said, sure. You know, my dad felt comfortable. He knew this person. This, is, this was my dad. Understand what he was doing. He was still drinking, and yet he looked and said, I want this for you, honey. I want your life to be better. So he came to pick me up. Well, this man, remember this is back in 79. And this man came, and he was really dressed preppy. This man had nice white hair. I have a liking to white hair. I don't know, you know. And um, he had nice, um, thick white hair. He dressed really preppy. He drove up with a, what did he drive up with? I don't know. I think it was a fancy car. It was like some kind of Mercedes or something. I'm checking it out. It had like the sunroof, and this music was cranking. I thought, this guy is cool. This is like being up on Westport. And I thought, this AA here is going to be okay, you know. <laughs> I, you know, this, this old time, you know, the guys are going to be skeevy, you know, the women are going to be ragged. I had that out of my head. I said, no, this is going to be okay. So we get in the car. We go. Go to the meeting. There is this meeting. There's a long table, a round table at the end, and they had the red and white checkered tablecloth on it. There's this cheap old metal light, like a, like a, just a lampshade kind of, metal light with a bulb in the middle hanging from a chain. It's kind of swinging a bit. Room is filled with smoke. Back in 79, we had a lot more smoky meetings. Room is filled with smoke, and there's this man sharing the meeting at the end of the round bridge on my checker tablecloth, who's speaking with a very heavy Spanish accent, running this. And I didn't listen to what he was saying. I looked at Roger, and I said, Roger, I think we're in the wrong place. I said, I think we're in a poker game. And he says, oh, no, dear, just sit down. You know, you'll be okay. And I thought, no, this it's a car, the clothes, you know, the hair. And this was not what I thought. So I sat down, and this is when they told me that it's, you know, the substance that you're going for. You're not going for the image. You're not going for a social life. You're going for the substance. And that was my first lesson in it. The people that, that greeted me were very nice. They were very patient. I remember I was very um, sick. And I would sit at the meetings with my knees up to my chest and that's what would attest to this. My knees up to my chest, my arms around my knees, and I would just rock and rock. I was so afraid. I was only, four, I was only 15 years old, you know, and I, I came from a life that was pretty sheltered, always, you know, you know, pleasant and social, always being at social events for mom and dad, but never being someplace alone like that with something so scary as alcoholism. 
you know, and, and I was without boots, and now I didn't even have a crutch, you know, and it was scary. And every time a siren would go by, I'd like flip out, because I can remember my last drunk and when they were all coming after me. And it was a tough time, people would just say, keep coming, keep coming. And I did, and I listened, and I remember the older fellas. Now, fellas, nothing personal, but I see you guys, you come up with your big arms and your big eyes, and hi, honey, and I'm like, ooh, you know. <laughs> And I was just kind of skeeved, you know. And then after a while, I learned I'd see them come, and I'd stick out my hand, and I'd say, Hi, nice to meet you. You know, I was only 15 years old. I was scared to death, these big guys all over me. I'm like, no, 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 no. I didn't do this stuff when I was drinking. I'm not doing it sober. Now, that's not maybe what they were intending, but when you're 15 years old and you see a lot of big guys around you, you just kind of say, let's do that, you know, that thing you heard about before so they don't tell it be true. Let's just start enacting it now and see how it works. And it worked well. You know, I had chosen somebody to be my sponsor, and although she was very helpful in a lot of ways as a sponsor, one of the things I didn't like, and I don't have a sponsor anymore, um, is to say that I tried to get her to do to help me with the fourth step and let me do my fifth step with her. And um, she kept saying to me, Honey, you don't really need to do a fifth step. You just work it out in your life every day. And I really liked her, and I couldn't figure out why she would say this. And I know that's how she believed. And for a few years, now I'm talking, I was sober, you know, after a while, I keep pushing the issue. And I was sober like four years. And I used to be embarrassed to say that, but I say that because that's where I was at, and that's the truth. For four years before I forced her, I said, sit down, I'm doing a fifth step. You know, I said, everybody says you're supposed to do it. The books tell you you're supposed to do it. I'm doing it. And she goes, okay, don't expect lightning bolts. I said, I don't want lightning bolts. I just want you to listen to me. That's all. You know, and in the time that I was in the program, I'd already been doing it little by little with other people. But I'm one of these official people. If you say do it, I did it. You know, back in 79, I had a lot of people, old timers, who said, do this, and I did it. Well, you know, stuff in the program. And I made sure that I did that stuff because I was so afraid to drink because I had been sober just a little bit long enough to know that I felt okay inside. Not great, not loving, not, you know, wonderful. I just felt like I didn't need to drink anymore. I didn't need to drink. And I didn't know what was doing that necessarily, but I knew that I wanted to take care of that and, and nurture that. And so I made sure to care of my sobriety. People would say, oh, you know, I've got a year and two months, and, and that's why I'm not putting that down. But, you know, I was so afraid to get cocky. I never counted my days. I never counted my months. And I only count my years because I know what my anniversary is. And no matter of fact, a couple of years ago, I forgot which one it was. Um, and it was just one of those things where it's become a lifestyle for me. But I'm not saying that counting is bad. For me, I was afraid to have it go to my head, get to my ego, and go, well, look at all the time I've got now. I've seen young people come into the program and die. Not because they came in, because they wouldn't work the program, and also because they wouldn't stay in and do what was suggested. They'd come in, they'd dabble, they'd go here, they'd go there, and I thought, no way. So when I first came in, the youngest person around was like 30-something. Now, okay, when you're, when you're 15, 30 is like 70 when you're 30. You know what I mean? It's like way out there. You know, this person's done far more than I could, and so I didn't really have many people to hang around with. My dad, when, when Roger wouldn't, you know, be around to help me with meetings, because Roger wasn't the only person who drove me. He was a wonderful man, but he helped me with, you know, the people and, and to get rides. I 
started to meet some more people. And I remember this one fellow, he was very nice to me, and I'd known him for many, oh, a couple of years at this point, but I had never asked him for a ride to a meeting. So I said to my parents, you know, so-and-so, John is going to bring me to a meeting. That's a very common name. My father says, John who? I can't tell you. Well, Dad, and I said, it's an anonymous program. I don't want you go with anybody. And my mom says, I want him to come into the house. I'm like, oh, man, come into the house. I'm like, it's a guy from AA. He probably doesn't even want to know you. You know, I was so embarrassed. But I feel like I was going out on a date with this guy from AA who was married and had a kid, you know. But you think about it from the parents' point of view. They didn't know. Who's this guy? John. John. John who? Could be anybody. You know, could be out from another town. I don't know who this is. You're going to go out with them to a meeting. Maybe come back. Maybe come back with somebody different. Because sometimes back then I would take a right reference. Like, no, this is not cool, Carol. This is entirely different to my family. But they warmed up to it. And then, of course, I told John, if you can come in if you want, if you don't understand. He came in, of course. He was really good, you know. Ended up talking to my parents forever. I was like, come on, let's go to the meeting, you know. Let's get out of here. So that worked out fine. But, you know, just to, I'm just telling you stuff because you think about new people when they come into the program. Those are the kind of obstacles we have to deal with. You know, when I was in driving age, I had to deal with all this permission and clearance and all this stuff, you know, and it's tough. Well, I went out on a 12-step call with someone who was more experienced. She had the same amount of sobriety as I did, but she was older. She had more experience in 12-step calls. Okay, now, I have heard about these. I have listened to people share the experience about these. And I knew that this young girl had been wanting to come to AA, but her parents, or her, rather her mother, would not let her. Finally, somehow, through the grace of God, this mother opened her eyes and said, yes, I want my daughter to go to a meeting. So Barbara and I jumped in the car, and we knew where this house was. We knew the vicinity, so we drove over there. We pulled into the driveway. Well, well, the, there's a dog barking inside the house. We're walking around the house. We can't find the door. Okay, now you have to picture how silly these two alcoholics have been trying to get this mother to be open-minded to take their her daughter to a meeting, walking around the house who can't find the door. I said, I'm sure she's in there going, no way are you taking my daughter anywhere. You know, it was just one of those funny... 12-step things where we're walking around looking under these rose bushes, underneath this, underneath that. We couldn't find a door. We heard the dog. We said, there's got to be a way to get into this house, and we can't find it. And here we are sober, both sober, and we can't find a way. We felt, we just left it laughing, laughing. You know, it has its uh, humorous side at times. We finally got her, and she came, and she's, you know, she's been in the program ever since. But the opportunities that have come in just for meeting other people, I've been also very involved with public information. And by doing that, I know that um, Hugh and I were involved with a few other things, and <clears throat> he's just exposing to a lot of different things I can do in the program. And I've also spoken to schools. And understanding that as my recovery was continuing through the years, I was always learning new things and, you know, trying what the program had suggested and trying other people had um, said that they've learned from their mistakes. I'd go to school. I'd share with the students. I'd share with grammar school. Don't underestimate grammar school and the pain that these little ones go through. I shared this story, and I, I could see, I could, I could almost peg, I could almost peg the AA families out there, or the alcoholic families, rather. I could almost pe- peg them, because those are the eyes that wouldn't stay in one place, or the eyes that look down a lot. There's pain in some of these kids' eyes in grammar school. I knew I could only carry the message, and I couldn't fix them, but I could open some doors, you know, like I said, AA, it's done for me. It opened some doors, some opportunities, and I spoke to these kids. One little girl comes up to me afterwards, and she says to me, she says, you know, she says, my grand, she was a beautiful blonde haired little girl. She was just a little peanut. 
And um, she says, you know, she says, my grandmother drinks so much, and she says, and she just changes. She, she's really mean, she says, and I try to be a good girl. I don't know what else I can do different. She says, what can I do? So even though she didn't hear the part of my message that said it wasn't her fault, although that was part of my message, because it's, dr- it's drilled in her somewhere along the line that it is her fault, she already now knows, at least she heard the part of, there are ways to get help. And that was my message, to let them know. There's a lot of opportunities out there for people to do that. Don't pass it up. Um, I've spoken to them. I've spoken to all different people. I've spoken to um, to Teamsters who, when they put their arms down, they came out to here. And I was about 16 years old, and this is where their arms rested. And I'm up here going, Hi, my name is Carol, and I'm an alcoholic. Don't hurt me! You know? <laughs> These fellows were huge, but you know what? After after I shared, they came up to me and they'd shake my hand. They'd have tears in their eyes. I thought to myself, where did these tears come from? This guy is so big. I mean, who made him cry? And he says, honey, he says, thank you for sharing. And I thought to myself, I don't care what color you are or how big you are. Everybody feels the same feelings, you know, not, not to be intimidated to share that. Excuse me. So... One of the things that I have to share that is really important for me to share, and it's one of my strongest messages, it's been kind of a mission of mine the past couple of years, is that I know that people in AA are known to be very open and very willing to help. That is good. However, I have to tell you that I grew up in Cheshire, and right before I was getting married, I moved to Wallingford, Connecticut. And I was happy in a sense to move because I was known as Little Carol, Little Carol, Little Carol, Little Carol, everywhere, Little Carol, you know. And it wasn't because I was five feet tall, it was just because I was young. And I, I felt that there was a pressure on me to not make certain mistakes. And that was hard, it was hard pressure. I had heard people say, oh, well, you can now not do all the mistakes that I made over my time, young lady. Good for you. And I hear that and I was like, hmm. You know, and one of the things I have to say is that in the past June, a couple months ago, I celebrated 15 years sobriety. But I have to tell you that I made a lot of the same mistakes you guys made and I was sober. Don't tell people that they just because they're sober they're not going to make some of those mistakes. The difference between making a mistake, if you and I make the same mistake when you're drunk or I'm sober, the difference is that I know, I probably know faster when the mistake was made, and I also know probably how to make restitution for it, okay? Whereas an alcoholic would live with misery for years and years, probably trying to drink it in and drink it in. You know, before I got married, I made some poor choices. I I got myself in situations that weren't good. I did things that I wasn't proud of, and I was sober. And you know what? I would share some of these, some of these things with people. These people had time. These people were people that I respected because I don't like the saying, stick with the winners, but that's basically what I do. I hang around the new people when, you know, I try to offer what I can and listen, and, you know, sometimes offering is just a listening ear. But I do spend most of my time with people who have time in the program, and these people said, I can't believe you made a mistake like that, and you've been sober so long. That would dig right to my heart. I want you all to know that. Think before you say things like that, please, because people who are young are going to go through life. 
They're going to go through it. They might get married and they might get divorced. Why? Not because of drinking, because maybe that's just the, the choices they've made in their life. And drinking doesn't mean that, not drinking rather, doesn't mean that you're not going to make those mistakes. So please cut us a little slack. You know, be careful with what you say, especially to young people, because the permission is there to make mistakes. It's always there to make mistakes. Always. Always. But the, the thing about AA is that we know that we have options. We know that our mistakes are never final. And that we know that we have to make good if we've hurt somebody else especially. I mean, that's what the steps are telling us over the years. We've learned that. You know, and that's, that's just part of, you know, practice these principles in all my affairs. That's right. And affairs might mean mistakes. It means anything that comes along the way, just keep using your steps. Make good for your life. I heard someone say, and I loved it a long time ago, my life might be the only version of a big book that a person might see. So it doesn't mean I'm perfect. It just means if I mess up, make good for it. Show, that, show some humility. Show that, yeah, I'm really sorry I made a mistake. I have to tell you, I went to a wedding, a sober wedding, with somebody who was in the program, knew I was very impatient with this person because I saw him do things I didn't think was good. Especially to a friend of mine who was in the program who I didn't understand why she was with him. But that was neither here nor there. And uh, it's just, you know, me going, oh, man, think big, you know, but... Um, you know, because, you know, when you're sober a while, you tend to think, you know, let's get past the sickness and get into healthy thinking. And um, he said something about her I didn't like, and she wasn't there. Well, <laughs> I don't care if I'm sober or not. That tongue, bing, came right out. And his eyeballs got big and his mouth dropped. And my husband just went, oh. And after we just kind of walked away, I said to my husband, I was wrong. Oh, yeah, you were. <laughs> I said, I'm going to have to go talk to him. Oh, yes, you will. And I thought, oh, you know, I just hate that part. <laughs> I just hate that part. And so afterwards, I went up to him. And after I cooled down, prayed a bit, and I said, okay, Lord, come on, let's, let's get this back together. And I said and explained to him, I said, listen, what I said before was wrong. I was out of line. You know what he said? Don't worry about it. I've learned something, not necessarily in AA, but I've learned with some of my church friends that when you are, when someone is trying to make an apology to you and you, oh, don't worry about it. You're shutting them off. You are shutting that door to communication immediately. Oh, don't worry about it. You're not forgiving them. You're not forgetting them. That's for sure. That's for sure. That's like one more drink down. You're just feeding that thing. And when he's, oh, don't worry about it. I said to him, I'm not worrying about it, but I want you to know I was wrong and I was out of line. How you and so-and-so run your life is up to you, and I was out of line, so I apologize. Yeah, don't worry about it. I said to him, I'm not, but I just wanted to let you know I'm sorry. And I let it go at that. And I walked away and I felt better. And I was mortified that she, what was going to happen afterwards, but he wouldn't dare have said anything because he knows that then she would have known what he said. So I know it's kind of safe there. But the bottom line, the bottom line was that I knew I was wrong and I made good on it. And that's what A has taught me. Did I make a mistake? Of course I made the mistake. That's what the steps are for. That's why you don't run through them once. That's why you don't say, okay, let's get on to party life. You know, I knew I was an alcoholic when I was in the program for a while. And at one point when I started to think twice, am I really an alcoholic? I mean, really? I mean, am I really? Because I really didn't have a desire to drink. I thought, okay, Carol, let's say you're not. Let's say you're not an alcoholic. What's the first thing you would do? I'd say, 
probably just go out and have one drink. <laughs> and that's, that's what I, that's how I told myself, Carol, look at that. Why is that? Even though it's not drink, 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 drink in the front of my head, in the back of my mind, alcohol was so insidious it was feeding it little by little. And I have to say that the little mistakes I've made along the way in my, in my sobriety have helped to make my sobriety better. Like the time when I was still new in the program, and I knew my parents at booze in the house if dad was still drinking. But I was just curious. I was very new, very new, less than a year. Where did they put this stuff? I thought, I don't want to drink. I just want to see where it is, you know. And so I found it after much ado in my mother's closet behind all the Mother's Day bathrobes we'd given her, you know, way in back. And there were the bottles, sparkly, shiny, corks up, everything's ready. And I used to like Jerem Bowie. And I thought to myself, I just want to see if it smells the same. This is really what I did. I didn't want to drink. I took the bottle. Of course, I checked my sure nobody was around. Took the bottle, took the cork out. Yep, still smells the same. And I thought, I wonder if I just like suck on the cork if that counts as a drink. <laughs> and I was just going to suck on it just to see if it tastes the same. And I did. And I thought to myself, no, I don't think I should. So I put it back in. No guilt, mind you. No guilt. Put it away. I went to my home group that night, and I was sharing. And I said, yeah, you know, like a funny thing happened, and I just mentioned it. And after I mentioned it, just like I did to you, people would come to me. People during the meeting would raise their hand. Carol, I really want to thank you for sharing. It took a lot of honesty. Carol, thank you for sharing. It took a lot of courage. And after all, I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, courage, honesty? I don't think that was good. I didn't know until then that that was a wrong thing to do. If it was wrong, I would never have brought it up at a meeting that new in the program. <laughs> I, I would have said, no, of course I'm fine, you know, but I thought this was just something you did. So it was little things like that said to me, Carol, watch your step. This disease is back there lurking and it's telling you that when you least expect it, that little move you're going to make, you're going to have to watch out. So sobriety has been good. AA has opened many, many doors for me. I've learned a lot. I've learned what kind of relationships I do want. And I've also learned from AA some of the things that I don't want. And I say that with all honesty because there are a lot of sick people in AA also. I hear people coming in with some real old baggage, real old baggage. And sometimes they get all the attention in meetings too. They'll sit there ha, 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 talking about people in real bad ways. And because they're loud and they appear confident, people listen and go, wow, he's got great sobriety. And I think to myself, no. You know, if, if, it, if it doesn't settle right with me, if, if to me, if I don't think that it's okay with my higher power, would I go and do these things right in front of my higher power? If I would, it's probably okay. If I'm not comfortable with, with saying I've done these things in front of my higher power, chances are it's probably not a good thing. That's helped me to keep on the right path for my AA life. I, you know, I went through high school. I got involved. I was sober all through high school. I got married. Never been happier in my life happier in my life. I married somebody in AA even though I didn't want to be in AA. I didn't want that. But then I thought to myself, Carol, being that you're an alpha, you have a good chance, even if the guy's not in AA, to peg someone who's going to be there eventually. So get him now while he's in recovery. <laughs> I know my personality. You know, I'm an alky. 
I'm a codependent, you know, I grew up in an alcoholic home. It just, it's going to come. It's just going to come. So he was sober for a while, so I feel like that was the best thing to do. And he's the greatest guy in the world. And I'll tell you, he's really a gift from God for me. He really is. And I say that not to embarrass him, but to say that the mistakes that I made prior to marrying him were all the right mistakes. They were all the right mistakes. Don't stop people from making those mistakes. Because when you get enough pain in your life, you'll learn to do things differently. And then enough pain to do it differently again, again and again and again, until you get better and learn what really works for you. And that's just part of growing up. It's got nothing to do with alcoholism. Hear that, please. It's got nothing to do with alcoholism. It's just got to do with growing up. And I'm very fortunate that AA has allowed me to grow up in it. In it. So... In June, when I celebrated 15 years sobriety, although that was a turning point in, in many ways by number, for me it was exciting because when I came in, I was 14. And in June, I celebrated 15 years sobriety, so I've been sober now more than I was old when I came in. And that for me is not to be cocky. I say that by the grace of God. I say that with all thanks to my awesome God. I say that... Honestly, with all thanks to all of you, because you've been there with hugs and handshakes. You've been there with a lot of, a lot of reassurance and a lot of understanding. And that is to say that my life does not have a path designed for booze down the road. It's, you know, God help me if it does. But from the path that I've been, I've been making through working my steps and working the program, it doesn't, I'm not setting myself up. My life is very healthy, very rounded. And it's going to close with this. That I heard a long time ago, I heard a lot of things a long time ago, and I remember them, that with one hand reaching to AA and one hand reaching to your higher power, there's no hand left to pick up a drink. I use both of those all the time, and I'm thankful for both of those. And with that is how I've been sober and how my life has turned around. And hopefully we, we hope to start a family next year. And I hope that the cycle in the family, even though there may be some things that are always going to be continuing because we're both in AA and we're both still recovering, that I hope that even though my father still drinks, I believe, you know, he told me he was in AA, but he's made some, done some things that I don't know are right. I've learned to just let that be. He's proud of my sobriety. And I love him and let him be at his level wherever he is. He told me, honey, I'm too old and it's just too hard to change. You know, and that breaks my heart. It really does. Because I love him. And one of these days, one of you people out there is going to be the one to help him. Because I never could. I was too little to take on that burden. It's a burden I've let go. It's not my job, but I pray for him. So with all thanks to all of you, and continue with your sobriety, because you don't know who that other person is you're going to help. It might just be my father. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.